What up, family? Welcome to episode 94 of The Genius Life. That's right, ladies and gents. We now have intro music. It only took us 94 episodes to get there, but we're a legitimate podcast, you guys. And uh, that track that you just heard was created by my good friend, Mr. Aaron Tapp. Aaron Tapp is a very talented singer-songwriter. He's a music producer, and uh, he graciously has hooked us up. So we got some some beautiful, uh, funky new intro music. We got some outro music. And... Um, yeah, big things are coming to the genius life, you guys. I got some personal uh, updates to share with you guys. I'm actually uh, moving from West Hollywood to Santa Monica. That is the west side of Los Angeles for the first time. I've always, um, when I've lived in LA, I've always lived in WeHo, as it's called, but I'm excited to venture west. Uh, I found a space that I think is going to be a lot more conducive to um, doing uh, more video content, and I've got a dedicated room that I'm going to devote to the podcast. I'm going to be creating a podcast studio in my house. So look forward to upgraded audio, better quality audio, um, a lot more video content that I'm going to be putting up on my Instagram page and my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Max I'm super, super excited. And of course, your support through all this really is going to help in a big way. To support The Genius Life, all you got to do is continue to spread the word about it. Make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast and pick up my new book, which is also called The Genius Life, coming out everywhere on March 17th. You can pre-order it at Amazon.com. You could pre-order it at Barnes & Noble. You can go to GeniusLifeBook.com and pre-order it um, and register for special bonuses like The Genius Life Guide to Restaurants and Supermarkets or um, a signed book plate for the first 1,000 people who pre-order. By pre-ordering my new book, you are essentially guaranteeing that I am going to get to continue to bring you life-changing episode after life-changing episode, week after week. And this episode is no different. I am very thrilled to welcome back to the show my good friend, Dr. Paul Saladino. Dr. Saladino is a board-certified internal medicine physician. He's one of the most vocal advocates of the carnivore diet, and he's also the author of the brand new book, The Carnivore Code. Over the course of the next hour and a half, that's right, this is one of the, most, this is one of the longest episodes we've actually taped to date on The Genius Life, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of why Dr. Saladino recommends for some of his patients an all-meat diet. We don't agree on everything, but I think that that's a good thing, actually. I'm very open to challenging my assumptions and my beliefs, as you should be. And I always learn something new when I sit down and get the opportunity to talk to Dr. Saladino. He's a brilliant guy, very dedicated to his mission of helping people improve their symptoms from uh, inflammatory conditions, autoimmune disease, and, you know, Uh, Even though the title of this uh, podcast episode was Max Debates a Carnivore, um, this is going to be the friendliest debate that you're ever going to witness. So I'm excited for you to listen to it and um, yeah, let me know what you think. Before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show. This episode is brought to you by my good friends at Four Sigmatic, who make a line of medicinal infused, medicinal mushroom infused coffees and elixirs. I happen to be a big fan of their Lion's Mane infused coffee, um, which Dr. Saladino would not consume because, of course, coffee comes from a plant. But I enjoy coffee. I've started to integrate coffee back into my life. I am consuming what I would consider to be the minimal effective dose 
most mornings, although I'll take a day off here and there. And usually I will consume the coffee in a pre-workout setting. But what I really like about Four Sigmatic's Lion's Mane coffee is that I, f I find anecdotally that the Lion's Mane has a synergistic effect with the coffee, giving me a, a focused buzz without jitters, which can sometimes accompany caffeine consumption, especially when you consume that caffeine or that coffee rather on an empty stomach. If you'd like to give Four Sigmatic's Lion's Mane coffee a try, all you got to do is go over to foursigmatic.com slash max or use promo code max and you will get to save a whopping 15% off of everything in their online store. Now we're just seconds away from getting to this chat uh, with Dr. Saladino. As I mentioned, I am pumped. Um, but before we do, I want to give a shout out to Shannon Shifty, who wrote a review on iTunes. She wrote, I absolutely love listening to this podcast. Always learning from Max. I feel like I am personally having a conversation with him. Max and his guests really take on some deep content, but presents it in a way that the average people like me can understand. Love it. Well, Shannon, I'm so thrilled that you are picking up what I'm putting down on the genius life. You know what we're all about here. It's we're making, it's, we're about taking knowledge and making it actionable, approachable, and achievable. So with that, I am pumped for you to get to know Dr. Saldino if you haven't heard him previous, uh, previously on my pop podcast, uh, or if you have, this is going to be a really enlightening and enlivening uh, sequel to the conversation that we had previously. So without further ado, here we go. We're rolling. What's up, dude? How's it going, man? Good to see you. I'm excited to have round two with you, man. Let's do it. Um, the Carnivore Code is your new book. I'm so excited. It's It's been a labor of love. A labor of love. But you've like kind of exploded, I feel like, in the health and nutrition space. Even since we met, like you've really been on a tear. It's been a fun journey. I had some ideas that have resonated with people. It's been really fun to connect with people like you and others in the space and share ideas and refine my ideas and have them challenged. And that's forced me to look deeper and deeper. And out of all that has come the book. Yeah. You do a bunch of debates too. I love it. <laughs> my friend Tommy Wood was like, you just like fighting people. And I was like, yeah, I do. It, I feel like when you have ideas that are as, I don't know what word to use here, as radical <laughs> perhaps, or as controversial as those that I would advance, it's my responsibility to support them. Hell yeah. It's my responsibility to back them up and to say to people, Hey, these ideas are different than what we've been thinking. Here's why I think they're right. What do you guys think? You yeah. know, Chris Masterjohn, Lane Norton, whoever wants to come on, you know, um, David Sinclair, whatever. I've had all these people on my podcast to kind of like, let's, let's share ideas. Where do you think my ideas are lacking? How do we make them better? Am I off my rocker or do these have some merit for most people that, that they can benefit from? Because it's fun to have radical ideas, but are they worth hanging out with? Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I love about you is that you're so science-based. You know, it's a, it's a, if anybody's like qualified to go into the research and, and really get into the studies and read them thoroughly and understand them, I think it's you. I try. Um, are you saying that I'm a nutrition expert? I think I would... I, that, it's so funny. I mean, we started the guys before we started rolling. Paul and I were talking about the uh, recent James Wilkes-Chris Kresser debate on Joe Rogan. And... Um, you know, we could talk about that a little bit, I'm sure. But I think that the whole thing about being an expert is relative because there are experts in like different, you know, aspects of nutrition. Obviously, it's a huge and complicated field. And, you know, just using expert as a, as a, as a source, I mean, that's like an appeal to authority fallacy. And I just don't, I don't buy it. And, you know, uh, the other thing about the word expert is that to me, it conveys somebody who's been sort of like, who's stopped learning, you know, like... I think the true experts that the more they understand, the less they realize they know. And 
it's it's the health detectives that are the that are the real experts, you know. So that's why I, I appreciate what you bring to the field, and that's why I appreciate what Chris, you know, has brought to the field for many many years um, before that debate. And uh, and yeah, so yes, in a, in a nutshell, yeah, I would call you a, a nutrition expert. Well, thanks, man. I was saying it kind of tongue in cheek and yeah. joking, so I'm glad that we clarified that for people. But yeah, I thought that that critique of James Wilkes of Chris Cresser was ridiculous, and yeah. I think that you went on the Doctor's TV show recently, and I I may have been on. Briefly before you or after you, but at the same time, <laughs> I was on the doctors. Cool. And they went to town on me. They criticized the the lawyer sat up there and said, "How are you qualified to be doing this?" And I just kind of, at that point, I realized I was in Hollywood, and wow. it was like it was like the Jerry Springer of TV shows. But in my mind, afterwards, I thought, "Man, there are so many people." I mean, I have an MD, right? But that doesn't really make me qualified. It, it means that maybe I've had some training and I've done a lot of years of graduate work and read studies and been challenged by other physicians to think critically. But after that show on the doctors, what I thought was there are so many people who don't even have, who don't have an MD who have contributed so much. You, Rob Wolf, you know, there's tons of people without doctoral degrees who are making great strides. Dave Feldman is an engineer. Like how are any of us qualified? It's just based on our curiosity and scientific rigor. It doesn't have to do with a degree. Yeah. And, and that, I think that appeal to authority is so false. And anytime anybody uses that, whether it's James Wilkes or the people on the doctors, I just kind of roll my eyes and go, fine, stay with the consensus, yeah. you know, listen to the people that you've been listening to for the last 30 years. And you'll always get what you've always received, right? A, a thousand percent. It's so frustrating. Yeah. And it's those people with credentials that have, I mean, for the most part, overseen the public health crisis, you know? So I just think it's, uh, it doesn't make any sense to, to blindly follow people just because they have like certain credentials after their name. I know plenty of people that are brilliantly intuitive about nutrition and who I would listen to, you know, far sooner than people, you know, certain people with certain credentials. And yeah, I've been really lucky in that people have referred to me as, you know, all, you know, experts on all different, you know, in all different fields. I've gotten, you know, nutrition expert, uh, which I, I shudder you know, at the term, because, you know, I know that there's a little sort of niche area where I know a lot about nutrition, but I wouldn't say that I know everything about nutrition. You know, can I, am I, a, have I become a walking meta analysis about the role of, of nutrition in dementia prevention? And I could speak to that topic very eloquently. Yeah, sure. Do I know as much about micronutrition, you know, for example, as Chris Masterjohn or about, you know, um, what we're going to talk about on the podcast, like, uh, you know, um, anthropology, the anthropology of meat consumption and things like that as you No, but you know, I think that you can have these like little sort of domains and, 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 and own them without having gone through the, uh, through the system. And, you know, not, maybe not everybody can do that. Not everybody can necessarily go and, and, and teach themselves, uh, in a way that's rigorous and, and, you know, have that sort of dedication and have that sort of passion. But I do think it's possible. And we need new ideas. Yeah. And what's so funny is that as humans, I think we all realize we need new ideas, but when new ideas come out, we just say, that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's why it's fun to be in that space and challenge people and say, Hey, I have new ideas. What do you guys think? But even within medicine, it's so ironic. You're going through medical school. It's like, it's cliche for them to tell you 50% of what you're learning today is wrong. Hmm. Right. But the converse of that is that when you bring up a new idea in medicine, you are u universally vilified. <laughs> Right. Wow. So we're told half of what we learn in medical school is wrong. And then when you try and suggest something new, people go crazy on you. Like the doctors, for instance, there was Travis was on the stage waving his arms. Like I just, there are so many studies, you know, it was, it's just crazy. Like wow. people don't accept new ideas with an open mind. It's good to be critical, <laughs> but we need new ideas because we don't have it all figured out. And yeah. so we're all a part of that. And I think everyone can contribute to that. 
regardless of their credential. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, that's why it takes 17 years on average for what's discovered in science to be put into day-to-day clinical practice, right? There's just this resistance um, to new ideas, as you, as you said, and I don't think it helps anybody. It doesn't. It doesn't serve anyone because people are still getting sick, right? And there has to be some measure of prudence around, are we harming people? But I, I think that we have to find the balance and, and push things forward and offer people new therapies because we know, and this is what's been so interesting for me about my journey with the carnivore diet, is we know that most of the mainstream therapies are not reversing disease. We know that we're not treating the root cause. Western medicine really hasn't woken up to that fact yet. And we know that most of the medications we use have side effects. Some of them help sometimes, I'll admit that, and they often all have bad side effects. There are very few therapies in medicine that actually correct the root cause, and there are a lot of people that are still suffering. Right. Whether it's dementia, the stuff you're interested in, neurodegeneration, cognitive disorders, autoimmune disease is interesting to me, nutritional deficiencies, whatever. There's a lot of people still suffering. We need new ideas. We're not done. Yeah, totally. So for those maybe listening who are not familiar with your work, haven't listened to the, you know, the previous episode that you were on, what is the carnivore diet and why is it something that you've become so, so passionate about? So hopefully people will go back and listen to that one because we did a good one. We did a good job. On that, that was a yeah, good yeah. one. The first one was really, really excellent. So I hope you guys will all listen to that one. So the carnivore diet is, um, I'll preface it with this. The carnivore diet is something that I heard about uh, about two years ago. And I thought it was crazy, right? So everyone listening to this that is having that reaction, I will normalize that and validate you all, <laughs> right? It's okay to think that a carnivore diet is crazy. And what a carnivore diet is, is an all animal diet, no plants. Whenever I'm telling people about this, it takes two or three questions to really clarify that. Wait, you don't eat any plants? Well, do you eat bread? No, I don't eat bread. Like, <laughs> do you eat fruit? No, I don't eat any plants, right? Do you drink coffee? No, I don't. <laughs> do you drink alcohol? Uh, that's a whole separate story. I don't do that either, right? But it's an entirely animal-based diet, and it's a pretty radical idea, right? You hear this, it hits you in the face like a water balloon or like just a, ver- a shocking cold day in December, maybe not in Los Angeles, but in Nebraska, you're just like, whoa, that is a bracing idea. How could we possibly not eat plants? And that was the way I reacted to it when I first heard about it, right? Plants have become a part of our culture. They're a part of many cultures. Um, perhaps every culture, they're a part of every culture, admittedly, and we see them all the time. Uh, we go in the grocery store and the majority of the grocery store is plants or things that are made from plants. There's a small thing in the back with some fish and some meat, but maybe 5% of the grocery store is, is milk and eggs and meat and fish. So the majority of our lives are surrounded by plants, especially when we're consuming them. And most of us have grown up eating plants. And the narrative has always been, eat your vegetables, right? And so there's a lot of conditioning that, that has already been done on us that plants are good for us and that we need plants. And so when I come around and say, hey, maybe we don't need plants. Let's ask the question, are plants good for us? Do we need them? And is meat bad for us? Are probably three of the central questions around a carnivore diet. And they're all super interesting and they all have lots of rabbit holes we can go down and um, too much for any one podcast. But it's a pretty radical thing to say to people, I don't eat plants, not fruit, not vegetables, not grains, not beans, not coffee, nothing. I don't eat any plants. And it, it was born out of a a continued issue with medical uh, problems for me. Hmm. So I had eczema. It was persistent throughout medical school, throughout residency, at times so bad that I had to get IV antibiotics for it because I had impetigo. At the time, I was doing a lot of jujitsu. I would get it on my knees and it would get super infected or I would get it on my back so badly that it was really frustrating, right? At, at one time in residency, I had so much eczema on my lower back that it was like a, an eczema tramp stamp. It was just horrible, wow. right? So it's just, and it's weeping and it's on my clothes and I'm like, what is going on here? This is just persistent. And it wasn't that during those times I wasn't iterating my diet and thinking what could be causing this. 
And I just, I just hadn't found the answer. I hadn't found an answer that worked for me. And what I was doing for so long was an organic paleo diet, kind of the middle of the road diet that I think is a great diet for the majority of people. And certainly many times better than a standard American diet. Yeah. And I just began to be more and more distinct or more and more intentional about the things that I was eating on that organic paleolithic diet. For people that are not familiar with paleo diet, I was excluding already grains, beans, and dairy from my diet, but had occasional nuts and seeds and vegetables that we're all friend, familiar with and then meat. Hmm. And it, 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 I didn't have relief from my eczema. What's going on? There's probably still something that I'm reacting to. That's one of the things that I have grown to believe very strongly throughout my medical training, uh, both as a PA in cardiology and then medical school and then residency, is that food is a huge trigger, right? Food is a huge lever. It's not the only lever, but it's the biggest lever. And so the first thing I think about for myself, my family, my clients, when something isn't going well is, is there a food thing going on? And this is what I hope Western medicine will realize in the near future is that there is this huge lever that they're not pulling, that, that elimination diets, regardless of how we construct them, if we construct them intentionally and with... Um, forethought can be so powerful. They don't cost anything. And, and even the fact that in elimination diets work suggests that there's an immunologic reaction to food beyond anaphylactic injury, right? People are familiar with peanut allergy or, you know, other allergies that are IgE mediated that cause someone's throat to swell up, requiring epinephrine, kind of like a bee sting type of thing. But there's subclinical, there really appears to be subclinical immunologic reaction to food. And that is a very big mire. That's a big bog that Western medicine has not even begun to look into yet. So I was iterating around those ideas in my mind and thinking what foods are triggering me. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take out oxalates. I'm going to take out histamines. I'm going to take out lectins. I'm going to take out uh, salicylates. And before I knew it, there wasn't a whole lot of plant food left. <laughs> and things started to get better. And it wasn't until I went full carnivore and I just started eating animal foods, and we can talk about what I eat, that things finally got better. But other things happened as well that were really surprising. My mood got better. And I didn't expect it to be that because I didn't feel depressed or anxious. I just felt more positive and I had more mental clarity, whether I was doing it in a ketogenic side or not on a ketogenic side. People might say, well, how can you do a carnivore diet, non-ketogenic? At times I was using honey to kind of experiment with the macronutrient ratios and the overall biochemistry. But regardless of whether I was doing a ketogenic diet or non-ketogenic diet, my mental clarity was better and my overall mood was better and the eczema got better within the first few weeks. So I thought, okay, there's something to this. Like, this is really cool. But that little voice in the back of my head is saying, but don't you need X, Y, Z, phytonutrients, polyphenol, da, 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 da. And what I had done on myself was just create this elimination diet. I just kept taking things out and eventually I got to all animal products. And since then, for about a year and a half, a little more than that, I've been eating just animal products. I've had a few experiments with plants. We can talk about that as well if you'd like. But then, then I really dove into the literature and I thought, what is going on here? Why did this help? How is it useful for other people? Is it just me? Is it applicable to other people? What are the plant toxins here? Can I really get everything that I need from animal foods? What am I missing? Am I missing fiber? Am I missing polyphenols? What am I missing? And that's been sort of the, the sort of deep dive that I've done over the last year and a half. I love it. But so aren't, I mean, elimination diets meant to be temporary though? I mean, couldn't you have said like, I'm going to, you know, reintegrate, so let's say cauliflower or like, you know, you know, just like a vegetable here and there to see like, to, to really get to the root cause and figure out what it is, what that one thing was that was causing these, these flare ups for you. You certainly could. And elimination diets can be very powerful from that framework. And I think that the carnivore diet is getting more and more acceptance these days as a very powerful type of elimination diet. And I'm, I'm happy that it's used in that frame. For me, it became more of a lifestyle when I learned about those foods like cauliflower, mm -hmm. right? 
So we can take cauliflower, for instance, and what I learned about the brassica vegetables was surprising. And the, when you're adding something back in, you'd want to do it because it has benefit. You might like it or it has benefit, right? And I mean, mashed cauliflower is pretty good, but it's not to die for, right? For me, it's not, I'm not missing mashed cauliflower. So my enjoyment of mashed cauliflower is not going to outweigh, you know, anything else. It's not like I'm really craving mashed cauliflower. But if we talk about the brassica vegetables, for instance, this is kind of a microcosm of plant toxin discussion. What you realize is that all of these plants from all of the crucifers, right? So this is broccoli, cauliflower, kale, cabbage, chard, uh, Brussels sprouts. They're all from this ancestral mustard plant. And they all have this defense system and there are different ways to look at the defense system. And this will kind of segue into xenohormesis in a moment, but, and it's the glucosinolates, right? And there are these, this family of compounds that is common across all these plants called the glucosinolates, but glucosinolates are, are kind of inert, right? And the glucosinolates would be things like glucoraphanin. People haven't really heard of glucoraphanin unless they've listened to a lot of Rhonda Patrick, but that's a glucosinolate. And there are other glucosinolates. They're sulfur-containing compounds that are in the plant. And as far as we know, they're, they don't really do a whole lot, except they're kind of like a booby trap waiting to be sprung. They don't serve a lot of roles in the plant. They're kind of just this molecule. And then when the plant is chewed, whether it's cauliflower or broccoli or kale or cabbage or collards, this enzyme called myrosinase combines with the glucosinolate and you get an isothiocyanate. The isothiocyanate that most people will be familiar with is sulforaphane, but there are multiple other isothiocyanates, allyl isothiocyanate, et cetera. And in cabbage, for instance, there are you know, 10 to 15 of these different isothiocyanates cauliflower is going to have more as well. And what's interesting for me is that this is a very, this, I saw this very clearly, like this is a plant booby trap, right? I love the movie Goonies. This is Data walking on the log. You remember that scene? Mm -hmm. And he, he walks on the log and his shoes pop up and he squirts oil on the log, right? One, it's a booby trap. One of my favorite, yeah, scenes in the whole movie. Right. Booby traps, <laughs> yeah. right? It's a booby trap. And this is, this is kind of a sinister booby trap that plants are doing. And they're springing the booby trap when an animal or a human decides to go chewing on the broccoli, cauliflower, et cetera, right? And then you get this isothiocyanate. Well, how is isothiocyanate toxic? The sulforaphane, for instance, is a pro-oxidant. And this is coming to the forefront now. I think for the last 20 to 30 years, we've been told about antioxidants in plants. And most of us are realizing, David Sinclair wrote this in his recent book, Lifespan, and I was talking to him on my podcast. I mean, the science really says they're not antioxidants, right? They're pro-oxidants, which can trigger an endogenous antioxidant response in the human body. So it's been mis misunderstood, but the nuance here is important because it tells you what the plant is doing. The plant is putting a pro-oxidant molecule out there to affect the organism that's eating it negatively, right? And we can talk about how the organism responds to that and the concept of xenohormesis, whether we believe that. But sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant molecule. That's very clear. There's lots of good evidence in human and animal models that sulforaphane oxidizes membranes of cells, creating things like 4-HNE, uh, acrolein, basically creating lipid peroxides because it's a pro-oxidant. And oxidation and reduction can be kind of confusing for people. It's just the movement of electrons. And when we pull an electron off a molecule, it becomes a free radical. And there are many compounds in our body like glutathione and enzymatic systems like superoxide dismutase or catalase that seek to kind of match up unpaired electrons or uh, remove that process of a single unpaired electron floating around, creating increased chemical reactivity or free radical reactions in these oxidation, peroxidation reactions. Because lipid peroxides can be damaging. They can damage other things in our bodies. It's kind of like an irascible child or, I don't know, like a little, it's just a little, a little thing in our body that runs around banging into things like a pinball and it damages things in our body. And so the body glutathione and other molecules will quench that. But 
this is common in other plants as well. Like uh, this, this kind of booby trap system is also present in things like cassava, this root that's eaten in South America. And in that case, it's linamarin, linamarase, and hydrocyanic acid. Linamarin is kind of the inert compound. Linamarinase is the enzyme. Only when you combine it do you get hydrocyanic acid. Most you can see that a molecule called hydrocyanic acid is probably not a good thing. It's got both acid and cyanide yeah, in it. Yeah. So, so the way that people have to detoxify that plant is by leaving it out to dry so all the hydrocyanic acid evaporates so they can actually eat the cassava because it'll kill you if you eat it. And our ancestors have kind of been doing the same thing with plants like crucifers throughout our evolution. We can ferment them. And what happens when you ferment a crucifer? Well, the glucosinolates get degraded. So cabbage becomes sauerkraut, kimchi, the glucosinolates are degraded. So now it's less toxic to humans. We can also degrade myrosinase by cooking it, but there are bacterial myrosinases in our gut that can still take the glucosinolates and turn them into isothiocyanates. So even cooking cauliflower and broccoli could still create some of these compounds. And then sort of the, the last piece of this equation, and a lot of people are probably thinking this now, is but aren't those compounds good for us? And this is one of the more uh, contrarian ideas that I've advanced. I would say they're not. And here's why. This is the concept of xenohormesis. And I talked a little bit to David Sinclair about this on my podcast when he was on and we shared our different ideas. Plants are full of molecules. They're, plants are like little pharmaceutical factories. Plants are like a little mini CVS. They're full of drugs. And we know these drugs can be beneficial for us in certain situations. Aspirin from willow bark, right, is a salicylate. Um, there are many drugs that can be beneficial from plants. Many chemotherapeutic molecules are derived from plants. There's benefits for cannabinoids and certain things. But what has happened with our conceptualization of plant molecules is we've sort of forgotten that a molecule is a molecule. A pharmaceutical is a pharmaceutical, whether a plant made it or Pfizer made it. Now, well, when I get a drug from Pfizer... I know that it has side effects and it comes with a package insert that is a mile long, right? Whether it's a CETP inhibitor where the trials were pulled or whether it's, you know, a COX-2 inhibitor, all of the, you know, they've been pulled off the market because the side effects are so bad or a beta blocker, whatever. They can have beneficial effects in the human body in certain contexts, but they always have side effects because they're kind of foreign to our body, right? And I talk about this in the book as the concept of disparate operating systems. When we introduce molecules into our body that are from a different operating system, that are not like a vitamin or a mineral or, a, or an enzyme that our body uses, they might do something somewhere, but they're probably going to do something somewhere else too. Mm. And my concern is that with the plant molecules, we've ignored the somewhere else. This is kind of the collateral damage. And I think there are situations where the benefit outweighs the harm, but most of the time I think it doesn't, hmm. right? And that's what I think we're ignoring is this other place where the molecules circulate and do other stuff in the human body. And I'll illustrate that with sulforaphane in a moment. But we've forgotten that plant molecules are medicines. They're all medicines. And so when we're eating plants, we're taking a lot of molecular signals into our bodies and we're taking a lot of medicines into our bodies. And the question is, do we need that? And is it a net benefit? And those are the questions that I don't think we know. And I'm seeking to answer those questions or at least pose them, right? But it's pretty clear these molecules do have side effects. We're just not told about them very often. In the book, I talk about resveratrol and curcumin. And there's very good evidence that these molecules have pretty significant side effects. Do they have benefits? Sure. Resveratrol can activate the sirtuin genes, but it also seems to decrease androgen precursors and decrease DHEA and act as a phytoestrogen hmm. and has been shown to worsen a lot of outcomes in clinical trials. So you get like quid pro quo, right? It's like you get a benefit, but you get a side effect. Well, we're used to this, right? Ibuprofen, sure. 
you're going to inhibit prostaglandin synthesis. Your pain on your elbow is going to get better. But if you take too much, you're going to affect the afferent arterial in your kidney and you're going to get kidney damage or you're going to affect your stomach because you can't produce mucus and you're going to get a damage. We forgot this about plants, hmm. right? We forgot this. And so my suggestion is we need to really weigh risk and benefit with plant molecules. Is this a molecule that I want to take in a lot of? Is it benefiting me or is the harm going to be, you know, not worth it, right? And so in the book, I kind of advanced the further hypothesis that plants have probably been survival foods. We've always probably eaten some amount of them, but I suspect that they were fallback foods when we couldn't hunt animals. And we can talk about the anthropology stuff. It's quite fascinating. But in that situation, I think we would have detoxified them as much as we could, either by fermentation or cooking when we had fire or other methods of, or we just eat them and say, hey, I need this calorie today. I'm going to be fine until I get an animal and the, the risk is worth the benefit, which is a caloric benefit. But this equation around xenohormesis, it forgets the side effects, right? Yeah. So with sulforaphane, we know this molecule can do damaging things in our bodies. It can uh, interfere with the absorption of iodine to the level of the thyroid. There's some suggestion that it could perhaps trigger even autoimmune thyroid conditions, although that data has not been fully established, but it certainly is very clearly competing with iodine at the level of the thyroid. And people will know this intuitively from the pictures of large men and the large necks of men and women throughout the world with endemic goiter, which is hypertrophy of the thyroid in regions of the world where they eat foods that are goitrogenic. Goitrogenic foods contain isothiocyanates. These are the goitrogens, meaning forming goiter, right. and they don't have enough iodine. Right. So in a setting of iodine deficiency, we know this is competing with iodine. Is this something we want? Who knows? Can we handle it? Maybe. And then we know they also damage membranes, right? So they, if before our body detoxifies them and activates the NRF2 system in the liver, they can damage membranes and create oxidative stress and they are shown to break DNA and cell culture. So there's this large series of sort of cell culture studies from the eighties and nineties that have never been repeated and nobody really talks about, but Bruce Ames references in a famous paper. And then you kind of dig in, you find this large paper, 954 substances that are tested in cell culture. Do they, do they damage DNA, right? Do they cause double stranded breaks in DNA, chromosomal breaks in human cell culture? It's called clastogenesis. And many of these isothiocyanates do many of these plant molecules do, but there's so many, we haven't even tested them all. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm not saying that it's exclusively plant molecules. We know there are molecules from meat that can do it as well. Like the cooking uh, molecules from meat, heterocyclic amines, polycyclic aromatic yeah, hydrocarbons. I was, I was totally going to ask about that because I mean, you know, we're talking about, uh, we're doing a risk benefit analysis. When you cook meat, you're creating compounds that are dangerous as well. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, just going back to sulforaphane, for example, so these are cell culture studies. A lot of the benefits of these plant compounds, I think, come from their, the metabolites that are created when the bacteria in our gut consume them, for example. Um, and so I don't know how much, like, how much actual sulforaphane are, are, you know, is reaching the cells, like your brain cells, for example. By the time you ingest it, isn't it, hasn't it already, and it gets metabolized, hasn't it already stimulated that pathway? And I mean, haven't there been you know, ample studies to show a benefit from that. Well, yes. And we can talk about that as well. Right. So what you're referring to is the NRF2 pathway and the increased glutathione from that. Yeah. And that seems to me to be a redundant effect. Right. I think that when we look over time, there's not good evidence from what I've seen that that's actually a net benefit. Right. That that the assertion there is that we're getting more glutathione or we're getting more antioxidant protection from our body making glutathione through the NRF2 system. But there's a really fascinating series of studies where they take out all fruits and vegetables 
and they don't see any change in inflammatory markers. They don't see any change in oxidative stress markers, and they don't see any changes in markers of DNA damage. Hmm. So you're going, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't add up, right? Like, and this isn't even them taking out fruits and vegetables doing a carnivore diet. This is them doing fruits and vegetables with like bread and pasta and you know things that most of us would say are probably not that great for humans in general. This is somebody eating like meat and like white bread, right? In these studies, and they and they don't see a change in inflammatory markers or DNA damage. So you think well, wait a minute, that, and there's multiple studies that show this, and there's one particularly striking study where the oxidative stress markers get better. With they, the removal of plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the removal of plants. Fruits and vegetables. Yeah, with the removal of Not all, just like wheat and corn products and things like that. No, they remove all fruits and vegetables, and, and they, they've done them side by side where they actually compare them, right? So they have one group, and they're between four and six weeks. One of them is 11 weeks long. And it's not even that they remove them. They compare it to a group that's eating them too. So one group is eating 600 grams of fruits and vegetables a day, which is like a little less than a pound and a half. And this is not, it's not like weenie vegetables, right? This is not like withered whatever, right? This is like carrots and spinach and Jerusalem artichoke and broccoli and apples and pears. They're eating a pound and a half of that per day. And the other group has none. And at the end, you see no difference in oxidative stress markers. And we go, oh, Really? <laughs> like, and so that's quite interesting, right? And this flies in the face of the epidemiology we see, which I think has been so misleading for people. That's why the interventional studies really struck me. And I thought, wow, is there, is there a single study that I can see that's interventional where I give somebody a fruit, right? This would be the simplest study. Here, Max, I'm going to give you half a pound of cauliflower mash every day for the next week. And we're going to check inflammatory markers. We're going to check HSCRP, F2A suprostanes. We're going to check oxidative stress markers, 8-hydroxy, 2-deoxyguanosine, lipid peroxides. And we're going to check beginning and end. And surely we're going to see a benefit at the end. And at least in what's paralleled in these studies, we don't see a benefit. Hmm. It's like, oh man, maybe we've got this equation kind of wrong. And in the book, what I suggest is that I think we do because I think that most of us can get enough glutathione and antioxidant production, or I even say optimal just by living what I call a radical life, right? It's exercise, right? You, before this, you were like, oh, I'm going to go exercise this afternoon, right? You're going to go exercise this afternoon. You're going to generate free radicals. And those are going to trigger NRF2 in the same way that sulforaphane does. And maybe later today I'll go sit in a sauna or I'll jump in a cold river or I'll sit in an ice bath, right? That's going to do the same thing. Or it's not really sunny today in Los Angeles, but if I were going to go out in the sun, it could do the same thing, right? So there's lots of environmental hormetics that we're exposed to. And my fear is that that model of environmental hormesis has been incorrectly applied to xenohormesis, to molecular hormesis, Mm. because we've forgotten about the side effects. So the argument that I would make, or the suggestion, the hypothesis is, why are we using plant compounds when we can get it all by living well, and the plant compounds give us side effects, right? Not everybody's going to be sensitive to cauliflower, but for some people, I think it could contribute to thyroid issues. I think it could contribute to excess oxidation. And for a lot of people, it it certainly is going to trigger gut issues at some granular level. We don't have the research to really dig down and show the immunologic activation, but the other theory is that many of these plant foods could be triggering the immune system at that subclinical level that we talked about, right? Mm -hmm. So from the standpoint of epidemiology, what do you think it is? It's all like just healthy user bias, like people who eat more vegetables tend to do other things in their lifestyles and then in, in their diets that are good for them? I think it's exactly that. Are you familiar with the UK shoppers study? I'm not. I can show this one to you. It's really cool. So I think that's exactly what it is. And there's studies that actually support that thesis hmm. of mine. So the UK shoppers study is a really fascinating one where it was in Britain and they looked at vegetarians 
and they look at the standard mortality ratio or the death rate, right? And it's lower than the general population. And this is generally the stat that we see over and over and over. Vegetarian diets, lower death rate, right? And then there's something really cool. <clears throat> they compared the vegetarians to non-vegetarians who did healthy behaviors, hmm. right? So this is what should always be done. I think in all of these epidemiology studies is to have a standardization group where you say, hey, how often do you work out? Yeah. How often do you go in the sun? How much time do you spend with family? How much time do you do meaningful things in your life? Between the two of them, so this is omnivores, meat eaters, vegetarians, same death rates, same death rates. And there are multiple studies that have kind of replicated that finding that, that it's probably not the absence of meat that is causing this or the increased consumption of vegetables, it's probably the healthy behaviors. And this isn't to say that food doesn't affect longevity or health. It's that in the epidemiology, what we're probably seeing over and over and over is the behaviors rather than food. I think epidemiology, epidemiology is really bad at sorting out which foods are causing an effect. It's like the nth degree of complication, right? It's chaotic. We can't say, oh, I mean, this is like the absurdity of the studies that come out where they're like, oh, you know, you eat three more eggs per day and you're you know, it's this equivalent, it's the same risk of smoking a cigarette, right? right? It just doesn't make any sense. We can't use, that's the wrong tool to use in that situation. But I think epidemiology is good to generate hypotheses. And then we can go back and look and say, yeah, it looks like the behavior was maybe the thing. And, and I don't think anybody argues the behaviors are important. And we've seen that over and over. Wouldn't you expect then to see though, like the, the, the omnivores live longer or have better health outcomes because they're eating more meat? Uh, maybe, but they're all eating plants too. Right? right. So the vegetarians are eating plants. The omnivores are eating plants. The ultimate study would be an interventional study where it's like a carnivore group. And a, I mean, just, just for the sake, I'm not saying everyone needs to be a carnivore, but just for the sake of clarity of experimentation, like what does a diet without vegetables do? We would really see it, but you might think that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. And, and going back to meat, I mean, talking about xenohormesis, like, and, and just the, you know, the cost benefit analysis of all these different foods, like, are you eating meat exclusively in its like raw state or do you cook it? I cook it. You cook it. Yeah, yeah, I cook it. So when you cook it, I mean, talk about some of the compounds that we create that are not necessarily good for us. Right. So this is an emerging field. And there was another paper I recently saw. We don't have great data here. Um, most of it's observational and sort of theoretical, but it's unclear whether there's a couple of things here that we can go into. Um, so there are two major classes of compounds that are formed when we cook meat. There are heterocyclic amines, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And again, those are big families. I'm not talking about specific molecules, but polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons generally happen when we smoke meat, right? So I've kind of recommended, Hey, you may not want to smoke your meat all the time. Like maybe sell the Traeger or mm -hmm. don't get, don't get the Traeger grill. Right. And the heterocyclic amines are formed when we cook anything, really. When we cook bread, we can get acrylamide, we can get advanced glycation end products. We can also get heterocyclic amines. And when we cook meat, we can get heterocyclic amines. And the question is, do those heterocyclic amines actually create problems? We don't know. Right. It's possible. I think it's totally possible. The question is, do we have an ability to deal with it? We have to eat something. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think just like with broccoli and sulforaphane, we have the ability to deal with it. The question is, what are we choosing to do? Right. Because we have, if we have a choice between plant foods and meat, we can eat the meat raw. But for most of us, that's not really a great option, both for food safety and taste and palatability and probably digestibility. So if we're going to eat these two things, where do we get the most nutrients? And our body probably has the ability to deal with both of those. I don't think we know what the deal is with heterocyclic amines fully, but they're even present in things like coffee. Coffee has a heterocyclic amine called harmane, um, which is 
may or may not be actually dangerous for humans. Who knows? But it's just a deep rabbit hole to know which ones are actually the worst, how many ever formed. And then the kind of workaround there is don't cook your meat on a grill, right? Don't burn it. You can do low temperature cooking. You can do roasting or you can do water bath cooking. I'm not a huge fan of sous vide because of all the plastic, but there are other ways to do. There are certainly ways to heat meat without creating as many heterocyclic amines, right? You can stew, you can steam. There's like these steam convection ovens. People say, well, that doesn't taste good. And you say, (laughs) well, like have your cake and eat it too. You know, (laughs) like we have to cook our food somehow. So there are, that's the workaround there for me is that I definitely cook in a pan, but I'll cook low temperature and I, I don't burn my meat. I don't cook in oil right? So the meat just goes on the pan. I use a stainless steel pan and I'm cooking at low temperature, almost like there's a grill out now called the cinder that is like, it's like a fancy George Foreman that has these two plates that come down and can heat it at very low heat. Hmm. So it's not going to create as many heterocyclic amines at the surface and it just slowly warms the meat. And then if you want the sear, you can, it's kind of like that give and take, but yeah, you're right. Basically when we cook anything, uh, as opposed to steaming, right? If we cook anything at dry, hot temperature, these compounds are formed and how do we mitigate that? But you're absolutely right. But it seems like we're kind of dancing. It's, it seems like you're willing to dance around the fact that, you know, when we cook meat, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, by the way, because, you know, I mean, my listeners know I'm a huge fan of, of meat and all the health benefits that come from eating properly raised meat. Uh, but it seems like you're a little bit dancing around the fact that, like, we create these potentially unhealthy comp- compounds with meat, but you're not willing to do so for the potentially, you know, unhealthy compounds that are found in plant foods. The difference is that the plant foods, they're already there, right? The plants, it's plant defense chemical. Mm -hmm. And there's more of them, I would say. I mean, it's hard to argue the absolute amounts. If you look at meat, it's not in meat, right? It's that we cook it, right? And when we cook plants, we're going to add the same things to plants plus the plant defense chemicals. Mm -hmm. The juxtaposition that I'm drawing is that animals run away from their attackers, right? Plants just make chemicals to hit their attacker in the face or, you know, in the mouth or the stomach or the brain or wherever when they eat them. So animals use locomotion as a defense or tusks or teeth or antlers. Plants made chemicals. Mm -hmm. And then on top of those plant chemicals, we can add more chemicals when we cook. There's like two separate types of toxins, right? There's cooking things and there's intrinsic things. And the animal foods are much better, I would argue, from the intrinsic perspective. And so, yes, then I would say at the cooking level, heating of anything is going to cause an issue and there are ways to mitigate it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Reasonable. Yes. Um, I think a lot of people are concerned and you have a background in cardiology you know, some of the, some of the big concerns that I think people would have against eating more meat, um, would be the risk of heart disease would be the risk of cancer and the risk of constipation. That's a, not a hard problem, but we can talk about all of it. Yeah. I mean, like when you cut plants, don't, don't you need the fiber? I know it's a big, it's a big topic for you. Um, but yeah, the whole fiber thing. I mean, we need, we eat plants. It, you know, bulks up stool, makes it easier to go to the bathroom. Doesn't it? Isn't that like one of the, one of the benefits? And then, you know, the, that, that's, well, that's sort of, that's the, that's the area where I'm, I could use a little bit of clarity. Yeah. But the me- heart disease thing, the cancer thing, um, you know, I think, uh, that's not a big concern for me based on the science that I've read, but you know, just for anybody who might be concerned about either of those three things, let's we can like, talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that they're big topics, but maybe just sort of like a, a try. Yeah. No, we'll talk about poop. So if you look at the evidence, if you look at the scientific literature, right, which is probably the best thing we have other than experiential evidence, the experiential evidence I would offer is that 
um, as a year and a half strict carnivore, a very strict carnivore for me. I mean, I've had a few days where I've introduced carbohydrates as an experiment, but I poop every morning without a problem, right? It's beautiful. I'll send you a photo. Nice. It's great. It's great, right? So, and there are many carnivores experientially who find significant improvements in gas bloating, constipation, probably because the removal of fiber is quite healing for people. And there's some great evidence. Now that's just anecdotal, right? We don't have a case study published, but we could, but there are published case studies and there's actual randomized clinical trials showing this same thing. So one of the most famous ones is in the World Journal of Gastroenterology from 2012. It's called Stopping or Reducing Dietary Fiber uh, Relieves the Symptoms of Idiopathic Constipation. I may have paraphrased the title a little bit. People will find it. It's a pretty interesting study of about 60 people divided into three groups. One group, fiber as usual. One group, reduced fiber. One group, zero fiber. All of them have idiopathic constipation, which means they have constipation. We don't know the problem, mm. right? We can't fix it. And which group does the best? The group with zero fiber. A hundred percent of people completely resolve their symptoms of gas, bloating, and constipation with zero fiber. So that's a randomized clinical trial. It's showing, I mean, and this is repeated over and over in literature now, that even in epidemiology, there's really no association between fiber and constipation or fiber and diverticulosis, which is kind of the corollary to constipation. We can talk about that. So it's a pretty tricky thing to sort out. We all think fiber makes us poop, but having a bigger stool is not the same as being not constipated. Mm. People who have constipation will know this. Generally, what happens when we eat more fiber when we are constipated is we have bigger, more pain painful stools that are harder to pass because they're bigger poops, right? That is not the solution to constipation. Constipation is straining, pain, bleeding, use of laxatives. And if you look at the literature, what it clearly shows is that fiber does not improve those metrics. Mm. does not improve pain, bleeding, use of laxatives, or straining with stool. It will increase stool frequency and stool volume, but these do not make a solution to constipation, right? It just means more painful stool. And I've experienced this too. So I've done three experiments, I think, over the last year and a half where I reintroduced one starch to see more for athletics. Will it affect glycogen stores? That's a whole nother thing. I don't think it really does. But will I feel differently? And, um, you know, clearly, I mean, this is probably too personal for people to hear, but, you know, your stool gets bigger, right? You still poop, it gets bigger because you have lots of fiber. But the same thing happens with people with constipation. You get bigger stools that are already hard to pass. You get more straining, more bleeding, and more pain. So fiber is really not necessary to have us poop. That's a real great fallacy. It's an urban myth. But does it help with, uh, like, motility? You know, does it help? Like, does, does eating an all-meat diet, like, you know, the, uh, I forget what the colloquial saying is, but just, like, kind of jam up the... Putrefied. No, it doesn't. It, no. no, okay. No, motility has to do with the sort of intrinsic nervous system of the gut called the myenteric plexus and the migrating motor complex. And that's probably more of an autoimmune injury that happens to the MMC, the migrating motor complex, in mm. cases of things like, well, maybe. I mean, it's all hypothetical now. We don't really know what's going on with SIBO. It's questioned whether it's dysbiosis and loss of diversity, but there appears to be a motility thing. But constipation is probably a motility thing in some sense. But that's the overall nervous system in the gut that's being regulated. And fiber is not stimulating that. Fiber is going in. It's being digested by some bacteria, not others. In some people, it's causing the overgrowth of bad bacteria or causing gas. And a lot of people who have overgrowth of methane producing organisms, the fiber appears to worsen things significantly, right? Because you give them more and they produce more methane. Methane appears to be a paralytic in our gut. So the, the MMC, the migrating motor complex, the myenteric plexus gets kind of destroyed or at least paralyzed. So worsens a lot of people. And that's probably why these people with idiopathic constipation got so much better, stopped feeding them with methane producers or something. But yeah, generally, I mean, 
pretty much substantially throughout the carnivore community, the removal of fiber improves gas bloating constipation almost across the board. I did a talk at KetoCon last year. There were about 200 people in the room, and I said, how many people have tried the carnivore diet? Maybe 75% of the hands go up. How many people had an improvement in their GI symptoms? About 74.9% go up. How many people got worse? One person in the room, you know? So like only one person in the room, it gets worse. Mm. Out of everybody, it's like resoundingly improved. So it, it's kind of a, people are worried about that, but it doesn't seem to be borne out in the literature or clinically from what I've seen at all. Do you worry about the, the, the microbial consequences on the microbiota in the I, large intestine? I don't, I don't. Well, the, you know, it can be in both the small and the large intestine that the, the microbiome is happening. But if you really look at that literature too, it's quite fascinating. And before the podcast, we were talking about how I'm going to have Chris Gresser on my podcast. He's a big advocate for fiber and kind of maybe discuss some of the data with him. But what I discovered in that data was that there are interventional studies with fiber showing it doesn't affect alpha diversity. So when people are talking about the microbiome, right, it's a broad term. We talk in big sweeping terms because we don't really know how to talk about this, you know, tr hundred trillion bacteria in our gut. There's gram navigative anaerobes, there's facultative aerobes and anaerobes. And basically what we know about the microbiome is that as a broad statement, more diversity is probably better, probably, right? Unless you have a diversity of bad guys, like gram negative aerobic organisms, proteobacteria. They can look diverse, but it can still be a bunch of bad actors. We know kind of which families of bacteria are bad actors, proteobacteria. So you don't want to see a lot of proteobacteria. These things like Klebsiella, Clostridia, well, not Clostridium per se, but Klebsiella, some other gram-negative organisms like that that can be dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so when we see those, we think it's, it's out of order. But if you don't have a lot of proteobacteria, generally more diversity is a good thing. And so when people are saying you need fiber for the microbiome, the next statement is usually you need fiber for a diverse microbiome. But the only evidence they're levying is, again, observational studies comparing the diversity of rural African children to, in Burkina Faso, I believe, or to, to urban Italian youth in uh, I forget what town it is in Italy. So they say, oh, well, you can see it, right? There's urbanity or, you know, and, and in this, it's just the same mistake we've always been making with epidemiology. Oh, they eat more fiber in these places that are more rural. Yeah, they, they eat more fiber, but they also do many other things, right? They have right. more contact with dirt and water and they're out in the sun more, they're exercising. They have so many different things that could be affecting the diversity. When we follow up on that, if we're talking about diversity per se, and we add fiber, there are studies where we give people fiber, the alpha diversity doesn't change. Hmm. No change at all. Hmm. And then there's a really cool study from Harvard, and I think this is not what they intended it to show, but it showed, like, they actually did a study with the carnivore diet at Harvard, and it was a week long, and they had one group that was plant-based, one group that was carnivore, and it wasn't necessarily the best way to construct a carnivore diet. It was probably a lot of lunch meats and things like this that you wouldn't necessarily include that might have even had nitrates, but they can show populations of, in the gut shifting, right? And there's no change in alpha diversity in the carnivore group. There's actually an increase in beta diversity, which is a different ecological measure that has to do with how different the bacteria are from where they were before. But the alpha diversity doesn't change at all hmm. when they remove fiber. And there are studies on ketogenic diets, which are usually pretty low fiber, although I suppose you could construct a ketogenic diet with a moderate amount of fiber that show no change in alpha diversity. So 
I have not seen any evidence, interventional evidence, that adding fiber or taking it away changes the alpha diversity. Anecdotally, there are many carnivore self-experimenters, myself included, that have done things like Ubiome or Longevity that see 85, 85 to 95, 95th percentile in terms of diversity in our gut. So it might actually be working in the reverse. Hmm. This is another sort of wild urban myth that we need fiber for diversity, and it's often parroted, and I've never seen it substantiated. And I keep wanting to have one of another expert on my podcast to kind of debate this in a friendly way with to say, Hey, what are you using to show this? Because I've never seen interventional data to report. And it's been, I've seen it time and time again. in the people that I work with and other people in the community that it doesn't seem to happen. But doesn't it make sense that what you feed would breed and by eating only one thing, I mean, you're cultivating hypothetically, at least the bacteria that are going to be able to break down meat. Right. And is that a bad thing? I mean, I don't know, but... <laughs> I, mean, I don't think but, we know. Well, I don't well, know, but... it's not just the bacteria that break down meat, right? It's the bacteria that break down... There's, meat is more complex than I think we're imagining, right? So meat is multiple types of protein. It's collagenous tissue. It's muscle tissue. There's organs, right? So it, it's, it's... You're cultivating microbes that break down protein, yes. And is that a bad thing? We don't know. Is it a good thing? It could be, right? Well, they did those, I mean... Not to, I mean, go down the TMAO rabbit hole, but because I know that TMAO is not, uh, you know, I'm not that convinced that it's a, it's, it's something that we need to be concerned about, you know, in terms of a more uh, diverse dietary pattern. But in mice that were bred and fed exclusively carnitine, for example, they were, they, you know, there was a microbiome that developed that, you know, was basically selected for bacteria that, that can metabolize carnitine. And so they had this overexpression of carnitine metabolizing bacteria and those bacteria created this surge in TMAO. And I could be, you know, I haven't read that study in a long time, but that's just my, what I recall from reading that study that, you know, if you're feeding the bacteria only one thing, they're going to get better at metabolizing it. And then you get, you know, problems potentially like this overexpression of TMAO producing bacteria. Right that's kind of predicated on the fact that we believe TMAO is dangerous mm. or are you using, I'm not sure what you're using to illustrate. So what happens with TMAO is you, there are bacteria in the gut that can take either choline or carnitine and make TMA. So trimethylamine. And then I believe that the liver uses an enzyme FMO3 to make TMAO. Yeah. Right. So there's TMA and TMA in the gut and then you can make TMAO in the body, right? It's not that the bacteria are making TMAO per se. And the TMAO rabbit hole is a deep one because there's preformed TMAO in things like fish, right. which have never been associated with any problems. And I think the TMAO research is very deeply flawed. And I've not seen any interventional studies with TMAO to show it. And there was a recent um, study that came out suggesting very strongly that it was probably reverse causality that we were seeing with TMAO, where what we know is that FMO3 that makes TMA into TMAO in the liver is under the control of insulin. And so people who are insulin resistant could, are probably making more TMAO, right? Now, I, I'm unconvinced of the hypothetical mechanisms of TMAO as directly toxic in humans. And in animal models, there are some animal models where it shows benefit in terms of diastolic heart, hyper, you know, diastolic hypertension and other cardiovascular parameters for TMAO. Hmm. I think like so many things, we're getting confused here and seeing TMAO as a a surrogate marker for insulin resistance in humans. And so in epidemiology studies, it looks like it's bad because most people who have high TMAO have insulin resistance. In the carnivores I work with, I do not see high TMAO across the board in any stretch of the imagination. It's really fascinating. I've been 
checking it recently on Cleveland Heart Lab. I probably checked it in 30 or 40 people. And some people are reasonably high and some people are rock bottom and they're all pretty much eating mostly meat. Hmm. So there's something else going on here with TMAO. And I don't think we know for sure. I have almost checked it as an academic measure, but it's not, um, I don't, I'm not convinced that TMAO is directly toxic. Your point is well taken though. What we eat will select for the bacteria that metabolize that. And my counterpoint would be that's probably not a bad thing, hmm. right? Because most of us are eating lots of carbohydrates, not me, but, and so you're going to have lots of carbohydrate metabolizing bacteria in your gut. That's fine. And you don't need a lot of protein back, you know, uh, protein digesting bacteria. Now we talked about the diversity kind of implicit in that statement is, well, if you have only protein uh, digesting bacteria are going to have a lower diversity. And we talked about that's really not the case. You probably have lots of microbes that are diverse that are metabolizing protein. And then and that's kind of the corollary to this discussion is the short chain fatty acid discussion, which I'll address briefly for people. So the main short chain fatty acid or the one that people think about is butyrate, right? And these are in the colon, not so much in the small intestine. We need these short chain fatty acids to fuel the colonic epithelial cells, right? They actually go into the colonic epithelial cell and then enter a process and butyrate becomes beta hydroxybutyrate right? Where are we familiar with beta hydroxybutyrate? It's a ketone. That's a ketone that we make in our bodies, right? So it becomes a ketone. So if we're in ketosis, we can use beta hydroxybutyrate from the blood to fuel the colonic epithelial cells. Interesting. Yeah. And other short chain fatty acids in the study from Harvard that looked at the carnivore diet showed this. When we use protein, we make less butyrate and more isobutyrate and more propionate and more acetate. And those can do the same thing. Those can also enter the cells and become beta hydroxybutyrate and be used in similar ways. Hmm. And so it's quite interesting. And um, there's some good research to suggest that butyrate also has signaling roles in the gut. And the same receptors that butyrate touches, isobutyrate can activate them in the same way. So it's like, well, we, we kind of, it looks like we have a limited understanding. There's an interchangeable system here. In the short-chain fatty acid production, butyrate goes down in some respect, but not entirely. Isobutyrate goes up. And then there's also a really cool study in cheetahs, which shows that the cheetahs can use collagen, and they can ferment the collagen and make short-chain fatty acids like butyrate. So though I don't love this comparison, you could think of collagen that would be connective tissue in animals that most people are now sort of excited about, whether we're getting it from a tendon or a tendon in soup, or um, I eat a lot of trimmings of animals that have tendons or tendons on a steak, like in New York, or a collagen powder, though I'm not sure those are completely equivalent. That could be seen of seen as animal fiber, right? Hmm. Because that can be used in much of the same way in the gut and fermented and made into these short chain fatty acids that we're talking about. So it looks like there's, wow. there's all these kind of mechanisms in back up there and the, the microbiome can shift, you know, in different ways. And it doesn't look like it's unhealthy one way or the other. We have to be very careful because what happens a lot with the microbiome is they will say, for instance, with protein, right? One of the criticisms of the Harvard study is that there's more bile-producing organisms or more bile-tolerant organisms. And they'll say, well, we see those organisms being higher in Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Therefore, it's bad. And I'm paraphrasing them. Maybe they haven't made such a strong statement, but that's what gets put out in the media is that you don't want things like Roseburia or Biophilia Wadsworthia, or, you know, things like this. And again, it's kind of like we can't make that distinction because they're high in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's doesn't mean it's going to cause those diseases, right? It's kind of like TMAO because TMAO is high in diabetes doesn't mean TMAO causes diabetes. Right. You can arrive at this place via multiple mechanisms. This is kind of like LDL and we can talk about that too. You know, a high LDL, maybe this is a great segue, you know, we get worried about a high LDL, but I think that what's happening with LDL and I'll unpack this in a moment 
is that a high LDL is often an indicator of another underlying problem, just like TMAO, just like the bile-tolerant organisms in the gut. It's not that that's causing the problem. It's that that goes up in certain situations, which make it look like it's a problem. And this is what we're trying to sort out in medicine. We have to be so careful about. And I think this is what we're going to continue to see over the next decade in medicine is we're going to say, we were wrong about that. We were wrong about that. We were wrong about that. And we already have TMAO, other things like this. We're saying, ah, it's not causing it. It's an indicator, right? It happens. But that doesn't mean that it can't happen in a healthful way in a different situation. Context is everything. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm kind of rambling. You want to hear about LDL? Yeah, let's hear about LDL. Well, before we, move, before we go to LDL, um, the meat cancer thing. So I've never uh, suspected that red meat was you know, a causal player in cancer particularly colon cancer, but because we were talking about the colonic environment, I've always thought that, you know, it's not the inclusion of meat that is perhaps uh, less desirable from a colonic ecosystem standpoint, but the, um, you know, that we need vegetables to create butyrate for, you know, to prevent, you know, to keep the motility, to prevent, uh, you know, you know, colon cancer, whatever, things like that. Um, so is that something that you would disagree with as well, that we, that we don't need vegetables for that purpose to prevent, to prevent cancer? No, we don't. And if you look at it, those studies are pretty clear. Hmm. The inclusion of fruit and vegetables has no change in the incidence of cancer. So then 99 and 2000, there were two studies done at, in the New England Journal of Medicine that were published. The first study was a large um, interventional trial of, I think, over 2,000 patients, and they had increased fruits and vegetables or the addition of fruits and vegetables, and I think five or six years follow-up, no change in colonic adenoma recurrence, hmm. right? So fruits and vegetables do not prevent cancer. Fiber does not prevent cancer in any studies I've ever seen period, that are not epidemiology, right? These are interventional studies. In the second study in the New England Journal of Medicine, they added a fiber supplement, which was like a cereal supplement. Same thing, no change in colonic adenoma recurrence. So mm. we, there's, there's no good evidence that the in, interventional evidence that the inclusion of fiber in the form of fruits and vegetables or a wheat bran supplement has any change in the colonic environment for cancer. And so then the, does that answer your question? Yeah. Well, and then I also want to, there's also an, an interesting link uh, with fiber consumption in breast cancer. Um, doesn't fiber, uh, and you would know this better than I do, but doesn't it uh, help the body get rid of like excess estrogen, things like that? It, it does do that, but I would paint that in a negative light. There are studies called the, I think it's the biocycle study, where the increased by quartile, I think it was, the more fiber women ate, the more likely they were to have menstrual irregularities and anovulation. Hmm. So that's a double-edged sword, right? Um, in some women who are prone to breast cancer, perhaps getting rid of estrogen may be a good thing if the system is imbalanced in other ways. But generally speaking, for most, most healthy women, the body's good at that, right? It's not that we need fiber to get rid of extra estrogen. And if you look at the literature, the more fiber women eat, the more likely they are to become infertile. Hmm. Because it's pulling out estrogens, they need to have regular cycles. So they're more wow. likely to miss ovulation when they're eating more fiber. So I think it's a very specific situation, like in women in breast cancer, like if you have an estrogen-responsive cancer, cancer, you may want less cancer or you may want less estrogen, right? But for most women, that's not a good thing, hmm. right? You want the normal amount of estrogen. And I would actually argue that's a very negative part of fibers equation that, and it can do the same thing. Like men need estrogen too. Fiber is potentially disrupting our hormonal balance as well. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. 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 I can send you that one too. I think it's called the biocycle study. Yeah. I would love to check it out. Yeah. And so we were going to talk about meat and cancer. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So this is on everybody's mind, right? And 
there are tons of studies in animals which show, and again, it's animal models, but that, that meat is not associated with cancer, right? And in 2015, the IARC produced this report through the WHO, so the International Association of Research in Cancer and the World Health Organization. It's a big report, right? Uh, says meat, um, non-processed meat, I think is 2A carcinogen, and processed meat was maybe was 2A and 2B for um, processed and unprocessed or unprocessed processed and unprocessed meat respectively. But they were saying that it was a likely carcinogen, right? Red meat, uh, even processed and unprocessed. And then in 2018, the reprisal of that report came out, or at least the analysis of that report, and you got to see how they did it, right? Mm. And um, there's a gentleman named David Clurfield who wrote a lot about this. He was on the panel and talked about it. But what they actually did in that study is they looked at multiple studies and then made a consensus decision. And there were over 400 studies, but they only considered 14, all of which were epidemiology. Hmm. Okay. They threw out all the interventional trials. They threw out all the interventional trials in humans and animals. They threw out the majority of the epidemiology, right? Because certainly not all epidemiology trials show a link between meat and cancer. And this is the problem with epidemiology. Right. For any epidemiology trial that I bring to the table or you bring to the table that says one thing, we can find another one that says something else most of the time, mm -hmm. unless it's a very clear correlation. Cigarettes, cancer, pretty much across the board, associated, right? right. If we're talking about meeting cancer, I can show you multiple epidemiology studies that show none of an association. And there's some that show, yeah, this is associated. This is the healthy user bias or the unhealthy user bias. This is the problem with epidemiology. What do we do? Right. Usually what we do, unfortunately, is we have a bunch of experts, quote unquote, who go to Switzerland, stay in a hotel for a week, form committees, make decisions, and then come out with a consensus statement that says, this is what we think the evidence is. In this case, they considered 14 studies. Eight of the 14 showed no association between meat and cancer. In six of those, there was an association, but in five of those six, the association was not statistically significant, meaning that the confidence interval crossed one, that when you actually do the statistics, you can't tell whether that association between meat and cancer is due to chance or something that's real. In one of the 14 studies, there was a significant association between meat and cancer. So one out of 14, and the decision says meat is a carcinogen, wow. right? And if you look at that one study, it's by Singh, S-I-N-G-H, I'll find you the actual name of that one study. The people who were, the, where there was the most association between meat and cancer were people who were the most obese and the most likely to be diabetic. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. Obesity and diabetes and insulin resistance are known risk factors for cancer as well. So it's kind of like, that's what the WHO decision was based on. That's crazy, but nobody knows the backstory, right? And then recently there was this whole hubbub about the Annals of Internal Medicine study that from the Nutrarex guidelines. And um, that study said, hey, when we did this graded recommendation and we actually considered randomized clinical trials, we don't think there's any association between meat and cancer. And everybody's up in arms and James Wilkes is pissed about it and <laughs> saying that this guy, this guy has industry funding, which is neither here nor there. Who knows, right? But so there have been decisions on both sides. But ultimately, for me, we have to look at the interventional studies. And the interventional studies generally do not show that meat causes cancer. Like if you look at, and most of them have been done in animals. I don't know if there's an interventional study in humans because it's long, it takes longer to do, right? And it would be hard to do a study where we said to someone, eat more red meat for the next three years and we're going to follow your colon cancer, mm -hmm. right? Um, although they've done it with vegetables and again, it didn't show any improvement. Right. So what we then we're, what we're kind of stuck with is like, well, the animal models don't show it, right? There's a study that I quote in the book where bacon was actually protective in a rat model of cancer, <laughs> right? So they give rats bacon 
And they had less incidence of colon cancer and they're inducing colon cancer with an agent in the rat models, right? And then the chicken and the beef did not increase the cancer, but the bacon actually had less cancer. So the, the researcher, I mean, I've heard people talk about the study kind of tongue in cheek and say, well, bacon prevents colon cancer, right? It, it's a rat model. So what do we do? But there's, there's evidence on both sides. It's just not clear. And part of me thinks just like, just like, hold on a second, right? Like if meat really caused colon cancer, wouldn't we see that very clearly? Like if meat is as bad as everybody says it is, it'd be like, right. Hey man, you know, like it's very clear association, but there are epidemiology studies in China that say that the people who eat the most meat, the men who eat the most meat have the lowest rate of heart disease and the women who eat the most meat have the lowest rate of cancer. And I think it might be an aggregate of breast cancer and colon cancer. I'd have to go back and look. Yeah. So this is the epidemiology is all over the place, right? This is the problem. And then the interventional studies are not clear either. They certainly don't show a clear association. And then if we look at the randomized clinical controlled trials, one group of scientist says yes. Another group says no. And then David Clearfield has talked about this original IARC report and kind of remarked, um, as a little bit of commentary that a lot of people on that committee were vegetarian and vegan and didn't have to disclose their bias. Right. So who's making the guidelines, right? It's just, it's dizzying for anybody listening to it all. But then what we're left with is any purported or hypothesized mechanisms like, okay, let's just say we don't know how in the world would meat cause cancer? Like, what about meat would cause cancer? Well, the hypothetical things are heme iron and N-nitroso compounds are the big ones. And we've actually talked a little bit about N-nitroso compounds and nitrates. And I was looking at this a little bit so I can talk more about this now. Heme iron is fascinating. Um, heme iron gets vilified, but in fact, heme iron is super important for life. Iron is iron, right? Iron is an element in the periodic table. It has two forms, ferric and ferrous, whether, whether it has a plus three or a plus two oxidation state. And that iron atom right, is complexed within the porphyrin ring of a hemoglobin molecule. It's called a metalloporphyrin iron. So what we have in our gut is an actual transporter system to pull in the whole porphyrin ring with the iron. That's how we absorb heme iron, right? And then non-heme iron is just an iron atom. It's just a piece of iron. Like you would get an iron shaving and you're going to eat that. That's what, you know, it's not complex to anything. It's non-heme iron, right? And that's the type of iron that's found in like vegetables. Vegetables, non-heme iron. And heme iron is found primarily in like animal products. It's in red meat, right? It's in animal products. It's not even exclusively red meat, but it's red meat more mainly. And so it's, it's a porphyrin ring. So people have seen a porphyrin ring. It's a large structure. It's kind of beautiful. It's like a flower of of carbons that surround this molecule. That's what we, that's, that's what's in the middle of our hemoglobin, Mm -hmm. right? Is a porphyrin ring. And that's what we're, we're actually absorbing the part of the hemoglobin from animals, right? That's how we get the heme iron, hemoglobin, right? And then the heme is complex to different proteins, calling it hemoglobin, right? There's globin proteins, there's alpha and beta units of the globins that make hemoglobin, but we're just absorbing the heme. And then we'll break it down and make heme for our cells, but we absorb the heme molecule. And so people want to say that the heme iron is dangerous. And I, I think that this is incorrect, right? Because iron is iron, right? And whether we absorb it or not is what's most important. And we know we need iron to make blood cells, to make glutathione. The dangers with heme iron are that it's more absorbable. And there are some people on the planet who can absorb too much of it, right? The ferritin can go too high. It's a rare polymorphism in genes for iron transporters, right? It's called hemochromatosis or variants of hemochromatosis of different severities. But when we know that when we accumulate too much iron, and there are a variety of things that can have this happen even beyond hemochromatosis, thalassemias, other sideroblastic anemias can do this, that they, they can accumulate iron and it can become re- 
redox reactive. Iron is generally stored on transferrin and ferritin. Ferritin is in a cell. That's where iron is stored. In the bloodstream, it moves on transferrin. But if there's too much iron in the blood and it's moving around, it can become a redox reactive element. But we need it, so it's like the Goldilocks amount, right? We right. have to have... So the problem with heme iron, I think, is not that it's toxic. It's a molecule we need to absorb, right? It's not a toxic molecule. Right. But if you listen to the plant-based theorists, they would say heme iron is dangerous. Well, heme iron is only dangerous when you get too much of it. And it's mainly for people who have polymorphisms and iron absorption. And the best way, generally speaking, is phlebotomy. Not, in, not across the board, but generally speaking, it's phlebotomy. And then you just get rid of it. And it's probably people who lived or evolved in areas of the world or their ancestors did where there was not as much iron and they had to hold on to it really, really carefully, you know? Mm-hmm. And so some people have that, that genetic sort of predisposition. You do phlebotomy and you're okay. But iron is iron. Whether we get it from plants or we get it from animals, people would say heme, non-heme iron is safer. Well, that doesn't make any sense because you're going to get anemic with non-heme iron. And there are a lot of vegetarians who are anemic and have these problems and that's been demonstrated. So Iron is iron. But in the gut, I think people worry that heme iron could cause N-nitroso compounds. So heme iron, I don't think, is toxic by itself. That's very clear. It's just a very highly absorbable form of iron, which is a great thing unless you have hemochromatosis and it's totally treatable, right? Heme iron, they believe the hypothesis is that it could cause N-nitroso compounds. Now, this is kind of complicated, right? This is nitrogen chemistry. Um, well, N-nitroso compounds, just for listeners who are, who are unfamiliar with that term, it's basically when you consume foods, they can either become nitric oxide in the body or they can become nitrosamines. And nitrosamines, and correct me if I'm wrong, can be carcinogenic. They can induce insulin resistance. They're basically unhealthy. They're one of the reasons why you don't want to, you know, if you're going to buy bacon, for example, buy bacon with sodium nitrite in it, because sodium nitrite in bacon is more likely to become one of these N-nitroso compounds. This is quite complex. You'll like this. Actually, no. No, okay. So there's actually new research with nitrates and nitrites suggesting they may not be as bad as we thought. Hmm. So this was the conversation that we had at Belcampo, because... Basically, the nitrates in bacon are the same as the nitrates in beets, right? So nitrate and nitrite are NO2 and NO3, respectively, okay? And people say, oh, you don't want the nitrites or the nitrates. Well, it's an NO2 or it's an NO3. And those type of N-nitroso compounds don't seem to be as damaging to humans as the dimethylamine N-nitroso compounds. So this gets kind of granular, right? The N-nitroso compound just refers to a... um, So you've got an NO2 or an NO3 or an NO. And an N-nitroso means that 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 NO is attached to a nitrogen somewhere or um, uh, sulfur somewhere or something else. So it's attached to another molecule. In the case of heme iron, you could have the iron attaching to the nitrogen and then the oxygen, and then that could form other N-nitroso compounds. There's another thing called a nitrosyl ion, which is NO minus, right? Nitric oxide is NO without the minus. Nitrosyl ion is NO minus. And then there's nitrosyl thiols, which are sort of sulfur, nitrogen, oxygen, right? And so what when I really dug into this, what you find is that the N-nitroso compounds that are formed from meat are not the N-nitroso compounds that are carcinogenic in animal models. Hmm. And this is all in animal models, right? It's all in animal models that they're extrapolating to humans. N-nitroso compounds that are are carcinogenic are dimethylamine N-nitroso compounds. And those are not formed from meat. Meat forms nitrosyl ions and uh, nitrosyl thiol ions, or thionitrosyl ions. So those are different N-nitroso compounds, Mm. and those have not been shown to be damaging 
to uh, an animal model. So it's, this is a real twist on it, right? Because when people say avoid the nitrates and the bacon, but they're saying drink your beet juice, it's like, wait a minute, that's the exact same thing. That's really the exact same thing. Interesting. So I thought, I thought that when you consume nitrates in beets, for example, first of all, you are not consuming these foods. Uh, you're not, you're not using high heat to, you know, to, to cook these foods, right? So heat, I was under the uh, impression, can, you know, was able to kind of steer the, um, you know, the conversion of these uh, nitrates into like, you know, and nitroso compounds. But then also there's the presence in vegetables of vitamin C, which can prevent this conversion. It's the acidity. It's the acidity. The acidity of the stomach environment is what makes the nitroso compounds. Mm. So even in beets, you could get nitroso compounds forming. But again, it would be probably these nitrosyl ions and the nitrosyl thiols or the sulfur nitrogen compounds that aren't probably that harmful for us. Hmm. It's the dimethylamine and nitrosyl compounds that are the hard, that are really the ones that show it in animal models. I'll show you the paper. It's really cool. But then where do we get, I mean, don't we need, don't we need nitrates? Don't we want them for cardiovascular health? Yeah, we can get them from all sorts of things, right? I mean, we need to make nitrogen, but our body can use nitrogen and make these things in our body, right? Hmm. Like you can use nitrogen and make nitric oxide. There's enos, Just right? Like ar arginine and, mm -hmm. and wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, amino acid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the nitrogen is from other molecules that we're getting. We can put an oxygen on it and make nitrate and nitrite. And so if you look at it, there was this big hubbub about you know, nitrites and stomach cancer, but the most recent, again, it's epidemiology, <laughs> but, um, it doesn't, uh, doesn't really show it anymore. Again, we don't really know, but it's, I think it's because of this, the, this, the devil's in the details here with the nitrates Yeah, and it's quite complicated, but heme iron, not toxic. Heme iron may make some that don't appear to be toxic. And in fact, nitrates and nitrites can become nitric oxide, right? So it's like, well, that's a, probably a good thing, right? And we know that's a good thing. That's why people do the beetroot powder if you think that's beneficial. Um, but there's other nuance around these dimethylamine and nitrosyl compounds, and those are the ones that cause the colon cancer, but those don't occur from meat. Wow, super interesting. Yeah, it's like a whole switch it all on its head, and James Wilkes doesn't know that level of detail. <laughs> no, no, that is, an, that is an impressive level of detail. Um, do you go into all the stuff in your book? I do. Wow, I think awesome. in, the, in the nitrates, I might have talked about that in the book, um, but I definitely, all the other stuff that I'm talking about now, I talk about in the book. Yeah, I love it. I mean, we're almost out of time, but before we, before we wrap up, I mean, like, I was going to ask you before we started rolling, what's your morning routine like? I also want to talk to you about evolutionary stuff, man. We got to talk about anthropology. Oh man. I mean, we can keep going. We can keep going. Um, well, I'll tell you about my morning routine. Then we'll talk about anthropology real quickly. Cause that's a fascinating, okay. we got to tell that. That'd be a good bow to tie on the whole thing. You okay. Think? All right, let's do it. So my morning routine. So I've been, I've been listening to a lot of stuff recently about this kind of stuff. And I think that the first hour of the morning is when everything happens for me. It's how I set the tone for my day. So we been listening to Jay Shetty and, you know, I think he's got some great stuff and I... It's all copied. <laughs> probably. <laughs> who knows, right? That's, uh, the, that's the allegation anyway, waged, really? waged against him. Yeah, oh, I'm no. not, I'm not, I don't follow him. I'm not a fan of him. So basically, I don't look at my phone, right? So I get up, I have my perfect poop. Well, here's what I do first. I get up and I sleep in a room that's dark with like a chili pad on my bed and an air filter and I use earplugs and a mask. So it's a super dark room and it's cold, mm. right? And, and then I get up and I have a little bit of salt and water, spring water. I have a perfect poop. <laughs> nice. Okay. And then I don't look at my phone. I think we're gonna, we might need photos. <laughs> uh, we don't need photos. <laughs> show notes. We'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, and then I meditate. Right. And, um, 
I'll qualify that. I'll make my judgment on myself by saying I'm still working at it. I'm kind of in the beginning stages of meditation for me, and I've become a beginner multiple times because I've kind of done it and gone away from it, done it and gone away from it. As I'm coming back into it, I'm in the stage where it's just tons and tons of thoughts washing over me. So I try to meditate for 20 or 30 minutes, and then I do a short morning workout where I've got an X3 bar, which is like a banded workout system. I've got a pull-up bar. I've got an iron neck, which I love. Um, and I have a handstand wall in my apartment. That's like a blank wall that I can do handstands and things like that on. Then I've got a hip circle from Mark Bell and then I've got, I've got a punching bag. And so in like, what's an iron neck? An iron neck is this incredible. It's like, it's really cool. It's like a halo. It's like a plastic halo that you put on your head and you tie it to a door with like a bungee cord and you pull back. Then you turn your head. It has like a, uh, a device on it that creates tension as you turn your head. So you can isolate the muscles of your neck and traps. Yeah. I really like it. Um, probably would need it more if I were doing more jujitsu and stuff now, but mm. I like it for surfing, getting tossed in the waves and it just feels good to have a strong neck in general. Totally. I think as a carnivore, it's very brand compatible because <laughs> that's what animals go for. We all, they're going to try and eat my neck, right? Yeah. So yeah, the weak part is the neck. So that's my, that's pretty much my morning routine. And then, um, maybe 45 minutes or an hour after I get up, I'll start looking at the phone and then man, everything is confusing, right? I'm looking at Instagram and getting thrown over here by this thought and trying to check email. The other thing that I'll do is that when I start working, I try and chunk my day into productive time and I don't like to interrupt that with email or messages and stuff. So I'll try and have three to five hours of just productive time and then come up for air and do messages and emails and things like that. I don't, I'm not always perfect at that, but that's kind of how I roll. Hmm. I like it. Um, what about like workouts? I love, um, I love body weight stuff. So I like, I mean, I like some basic movements like hinging, uh, deadlifting squat. I have the X3 for that, which is amazing. People can look that up if they're not familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I I should hook you up with one. They're pretty cool. So I do some deadlifting. I do some squats. I like the body weight stuff. I'll do some movement stuff, kind of like Ido Portal style. Yeah. Um, which is like bending and bridging and, um, I'll do the inversions, which I like a lot. And do you feel like you kind of like touched on this like briefly earlier, but do you feel like you're, I mean, constantly in just like a glycogen depleted state? Like how does, no. uh, how does being on a, on an all meat diet affect your, like your exercise performance? This is really fascinating. So I talked about this with Chris master John in the second debate that we did friendly debate. I really appreciate Chris. So, um, I think it's actually the complete reverse and there's studies to show that there's a faster study, the faster study people can look up Finney and Bolek, I don't know, 2005, they actually compared keto adapted ultra endurance athletes to carbohydrate using utilizing and they showed the same rates of glycogen utilization and replenishment after exercise so the the keto adapted athletes they were average six to eight months of keto adaptation had the same amounts of glycogen the same utilization and the same replenishment when they went back to eating ketogenic foods so Chris and I talked about this. I think that we know we can do gluconeogenesis, right? You can use protein. You can use the glycerol backbone of fats to do gluconeogenesis. We can make glycogen without carbohydrates. It's not a requirement, not in the liver, right? But in the muscle. And because the absence of glycogen in the liver is what causes us to be in a ketogenic state. Hmm. So there, if we get enough protein, and I think the protein needs are probably increased on a carnivore diet or a ketogenic diet, they're probably increased, which is what most people miss on a ketogenic diet. They go low protein because they chase ketones. I don't care about that. I'm looking for fat to protein macros and I'm doing a lot of protein. I'm probably doing close to 200 grams of protein a day. I'm about 170 pounds. And then I'm doing probably an equivalent amount of fat right now. So about one to one fat to protein, 170 to 200 of both per day. And I think that when we're doing that, as long as I'm getting adequate calories and I'm giving myself a little surplus of protein, 
I can make, I'm making glycogen and I believe that my muscles are full of glycogen. And when I've done the carbohydrate reintroduction experiments, I notice no improvement. Right. Mm. And it's so long ago that I transitioned to a carnivore. Diet. I don't really remember. I don't have set metrics cause that's just not how I'm choosing to use my focus right now, but I could go to objective measures right now, but subjectively I didn't measure, I didn't appreciate any decline in strength, endurance or anything else when I went to a ketogenic diet. Mm. I have friends that have kind of experimented with this and anecdotally experienced the same thing that if they're getting enough protein and enough calories, they have no strength decline on a ketogenic diet. Now we're not talking deep ketosis, four to one therapeutic anti-epileptic talking one to one fat to protein with protein for me. That's about 200 grams a day and a lot of salt. So a very high protein ketogenic diet, which is almost a pair. It's almost an oxymoron, right? If I check my ketones, they'll probably be between 0.5 and one most of the time, right? So low level ketosis is where I'm at. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's been great for me. So, but it is, it is ketogenic, right? Like I am making some ketones, probably low level. I'd have to measure in real time to see if, if I eat, you know, hundred grams of protein, is that going to completely move me out of ketosis? It doesn't bother me. Right. Um, and then I think that very quickly I'll go back into it after that. And I believe that in that state, the research shows, and there's good research also with intense exercise showing there's no decline on a ketogenic diet once you're keto adapted. So I think that what's fascinating about the human body is once we get used to this, we will put as much glycogen in there and we have the same amount. Super interesting. Yeah. And it's just about getting enough protein and enough calories. And so I did a podcast with Stan Efferding. Do you know Stan? No. Vertical diet. Anyway, he trains Tor Bjorn, half Tor Bjornsson and Brian Shaw, these strong men, right? Kind of the extreme thing. And I said to him, I don't think this will ever happen, but my hypothesis is that you could get a ketogenic strongman. You could get a carnivore strongman. And I think they would be better because I think they'd have more endurance because that's the other thing they found in the faster study is that you do so much more fat oxidation, meaning that my endurance is going to be so much better in terms of uh, not needing to refuel because I'm going to fat oxidize way more than somebody that's carbohydrate adapted way more. And they've seen this in endurance athletes, right? It means that I can access fat immediately, use it preferentially. So I'm probably going to be better theoretically at like burning fat, which maybe would mean that it's easier to maintain a body composition, yeah. not as strictly. And then in exercise, I have access to the deep well, right? Whether it's jujitsu or long surfing sessions, I have access to the deep well of fat stores much more easily because I'm fat oxidizing. And if I have the same glycogen, I know I have tons of creatine because I have tons of muscle meat. Right. Then you know, theoretically I should have the same power output, the same explosiveness because ultimately like what are carbohydrates doing? They're giving you glycogen. It's all about the glycogen stores. Well, yeah. If you have the same amount of glycogen, yeah, but you can't, I mean, uh, as far as I understand it, you can't be, you can't like be as powerful in those explosive lifts, high intensity, you know, interval training, for example, without glycogen in the muscle. So you exactly. need, you need glycogen in the muscle. You do. You want your glycogen stores to be full. Yeah. To be full. Yes. Which is why people who fast experience a decline in performance. Right. So how long would it take then for you to become adapted to a point where you can derive appreciable amounts of glycogen from your protein? Um, I think that we don't know exactly, but I think that study you cited with Volick with the like six months, six months, I think it probably happens a little faster, but, um, surely there is a keto adaptation period. Hmm. Yeah. And people experience this. So if people want to do a ketogenic diet, there's going to be a decline in performance for the first, I'm just kind of back of the envelope, three to four weeks. Right. Mm. And then most people start to see a return to normal and then maybe get even a little better. Again, this is anecdotal, inf you know, anecdotal, yeah. you know, recall, but, um, that seems to be the, the time frame that we're working with. Hmm. Super interesting. Yeah. Um, all right, well let's shift gears to the, the anthropology and then 
Yeah, I mean, because this is a cool story. It's a really cool story, and thanks for letting me tell it. So at the beginning of the book, I tell the story, and I, I think that I wish I'd been an anthropologist when I was in college. I studied chemistry and biology, but where we've come from is fascinating. And so this, is, this for me, was probably the coolest part of the book. So I was showing you before we started the podcast, a picture of the human brain size, right? And even before we were humans, we were primates. And our primate ancestors are probably chimps and bonobos. And we can look at chimp evolution going back 60 million years, et cetera. The size of a chimp or a bonobo brain is about 350 cc's, 350 milliliters. And it's the same size, right? They, um, chimpanzees, primate, our primate ancestors eat, at least based on what we see today, eat primarily vegetables, occasionally eat meat when it's available. And many herbivores will do this, actually. They will eat meat in the sitting of uh, absence of plants or if it's available. Hmm. And so, but what we see is that the size of the primate brain was essentially constant for 30 million years, right? What you get, and this, this is the kind of narrative that I put on top of this in the book, is that what you get eating plants is the same brain size, right? You maintain your brain size 30 million years eating plants, right? There's probably not enough nutrients, not enough calories, you're missing nutrients. Anyway, the, the size, for whatever reason, size of the primate brain doesn't grow at all. Six million years ago, there's a change in the African Rift Valley. East African Rift Valley rises up, becomes more savanna from forest. And all the, our primate ancestors, this is kind of the story, that were there are kind of forced to move out in the grassland and they become Australopithecus four million years ago. Now pictures of Australopithecus looks kind of like a chimp, something in between a chimp and a human, not fully human, not fully upright, right? Not fully articulated shoulder, um, hands and feet not the same as ours. Doesn't look like a human at all, kind of in between. And that's the Lucy fossil. If you've heard, seen that fossil, you can see kind of the reconstructions of Lucy's face. The, the, the skull looks different. It looks kind of like something between uh, like Planet of the Apes kind of thing. And Lucy's brain was a little bigger, right? And what, what we were looking at before, so we're looking at a number of things here that people can't see, but I can send you these if you want to put them in the show notes, these graphics. So the first thing we're looking at is the size of the human brain. And again, now we're at 4 million years. It's gone up a little bit since chimpanzees, but not increased a whole lot. And Correlating to that, there was another study I showed you looking at strontium deposits or ratios between strontium, calcium, and barium in the teeth of these people because the teeth are preserved, right? We can look at Lucy's teeth and look at the strontium ratios, look at the strontium to calcium ratio, look at the barium to strontium ratio. And what we can see in the stable isotope studies there are an indication of what the animal is eating because those ratios, just to give it high level, those ratios reflect trophic level. And we can look at, we can compare the ratios of those isotopes in known grazing herbivorous animals and known carnivorous animals, what we see is that about 4 million years ago, Lucy's teeth, Australopithecus, somewhere in the middle, right? Somewhere in the middle, not at the carnivore, not at a full herbivore, somewhere in the middle. Like this is kind of the story, right? Come move out into the savanna, eating some plants like your primate ancestors and maybe getting some scavenged kill eventually, you know, getting some animals. Mm -hmm. And then about 2 million years ago, something amazing happens. And this is the point in the graph that I really was drawing your attention to. An inflection happens in the size of the human brain. And we can tell this by looking at the cranial vault size of fossils. Yeah, you see this basically like super linear um, trajectory of the human brain up until about, yeah, 2 million years or so. And then I'm just kind of describing the graph for, for listeners. And then it takes this like, there's this just like a rapid upshot where it just becomes like exponential. And that's what, at about 2 million years ago? 2 million years ago. That's logarithmic, right? And that's when we imagine we see Homo habilis, right? So Australopithecus has become Homo habilis. But there's another species that we talked about that was similar to Australopithecus, um, that was around at the same time that kind of had the same strontium ratios. And then if we compare Homo habilis teeth and the strontium to barium and calcium ratios 
to Australopithecus ratios, what we see is a real, now we're shifted. We look a lot more like a carnivore. We're eating more meat suddenly. And there is evidence from that point, 2 million years ago, that we started using Acheulean tools. These are bifacial tools. Remember collecting like arrowheads when you were a kid? Yeah. An Acheulean tool looks like a big arrowhead. It's probably about the size of your hand and it's carved on both sides like a knife, right? It's like a primitive knife that you might hold the, it's like a, a stone knife, right? And there are cut marks on bones from animals at the thighs where we would be cutting meat away from the bones at this point for the first time. There are evidence that we were hunting based on those Acheulean tools, the appearance of the Acheulean tool, the appearance of cut marks on animals, and the appearance of mass animal grave sites where it appears that our ancestors herded animals into a uh, sort of a back to like a dead end and then killed them all or drove them off a cliff in sort of chorus, like a coordinated hunting efforts. Hmm. So the, the hypothesis here or the thesis becomes all of those three things occurred at the same time and our teeth show that we were eating more animals. Probably the most compelling hypothesis here is that eating animals made us human. Eating animals was the trigger. Eating animals was the shift between primate brain size and human brain size, which then rapidly increases over the next 2 million years to an apex of 1500 CC 15,000 years ago. So we went from 500 CC 2 million years ago to 1500 CC. So for 30 million years, we didn't gain at all. And then in 2 million years, we gained 1000 CC. We tripled in size, which is not easy evolutionarily because the brain is very energetically expensive. And there's so many, I tell the whole story in the book. We talk about the expensive tissue hypothesis in the gut, the idea that in exchange for the brain, we had to get a smaller gut. And all of this came together because we could eat more nutrient dense food. You can't have a smaller gut if you're still eating plants. We look at the gut of primates. It's big. voluminous. They have to ferment things. They chew 60 pounds of food a day. That requires a big, a big colon, especially to do all the secondary fermentation to make all the short chain fatty acids. Big poops. Big poops. Yeah. They poop all day, right? Yeah. They're eating all day. They're pooping all day. Eating all day and pooping all day. So we had a shift in the gut as our brains were growing and it all happened because we started eating animals. We see the Acheulean tools, we see hunting and we see the changes in the ratios and the teeth corroborating all of this. And then the brain just grows, grows, grows. And then the the corollary questions are, what about fire? And what about the competing hypotheses that we were eating lots of tubers? And this is kind of the last things I'll say, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. So from the fossil record, it appears that humans didn't have fire more than a million years ago. That may push back to a million point five, but we don't know. I did a podcast with Bill Von Hippel, who's pretty knowledgeable on this really cool guy. He's a psychologist that thinks a lot about anthropology, wrote a book called The Social Leap. But what Bill was saying is that we, the first evidence we have of fire, the oldest ashes are about a million years old. So we can't say that humans were cooking. It wasn't cooking that did that as far as we know. And then the other thing is Richard Rangham at Harvard is, has written a book called Catching Fire that was about fire cooking foods. He's called us cucinivores and saying that we were eating a lot of tubers and this was the main thing. The problem is that there's a big difference between 2.5 or 2 million and 1 million years ago. There's a big million year gap there. And people, the corollary hypothesis from Richard Rangham is that it was tubers and starches that allowed our brain to grow. And this isn't as compelling to me for a number of reasons. The first is that starches don't really have unique nutrients like animal foods do. Animal foods have iron and carnosine and carnitine and DHEA and EPA and omega-3s and a million more things, right? B12, yeah. B12, like these can create a brain, right? Right. If you look at what a brain is made out of, it's made out of many of those things. A brain is really not made out of sweet potatoes. (laughs) There's not a whole lot of DHA or EPA or a lot of amino acids or B12 in a sweet potato, right? Like it's calories. But I guess they argue that the brain is a massive glucose consumer and so like the... You know, the starch perhaps provided 
sugar for the brain? Perhaps, perhaps. But as I talked about with Chris, when we're in ketosis, that goes way down, right? So normally the brain consumes about 120 grams of glucose per day, and when we're in ketosis, it's about 25% of that. So, and we can make that through gluconeogenesis. So we know that our ancestors could have done just like I'm doing right now, eating steak, fueling the brain just fine. I mean... I'm, yeah, you're here. You're talking to me. I'm reasonably, you're alive. I'm yeah. reasonably coherent. You don't seem brain dead. <laughs> I'm reasonably coherent. <laughs> but what's so cool is this came up in the conversation with Chris as well. There's something called the amylase gene duplication, and I'll try and tell the story. It's a little bit convoluted, but bear with me, everybody. So around the time of Homo habilis, two million years ago, um, there was no Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens didn't come on the scene until about 500,000 years ago. And then what appears to have happened is that our Homo sapien ancestors left Africa 80,000 years ago. But when they left Africa 80,000 years ago, they encountered other humans. And these were Neanderthals and Denisovans, Neanderthals in Northern Europe, Denisovans in Asia. So there were other humans that had come from Africa. And that's what, we, what is believed to have happened is that Homo habilis, some Homo habilis individuals left Africa before Homo sapiens. Right? So they left Africa 500,000 years ago, 600,000 years ago, who knows, became Neanderthals and Denisovans. And the reason this is valuable information is that if we look across Homo sapiens, we all have the amylase gene duplication. We all have this salivary amylase gene duplication, which is an adaptation to eating starch. Right? So some have hypothesized, well, we were, we, 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 clearly we're all, we were all eating starch. And I think that at some points in our evolution, we probably will eating, we were eating some amount of starch, probably due to necessity. That may have been one of the reasons that we left Africa. Right? We hunted all the megafauna to extinction. We're forced to eat starch. We get a salivary amylase duplication. Amylase is an enzyme in the saliva that it breaks down the starch a little bit and makes it a little more digested. We can utilize a few of the more calories before it hits our stomach, right? So it's clearly we were eating starch when we left Africa 80,000 years ago. We don't know how long before that it showed up. What's fascinating is that Neanderthals and Denisovans don't have this polymorphism. Hmm. So that means Homo habilis didn't have this polymorphism. Whenever they left, 500,000, who knows? Somewhere in, that, somewhere in the undefined region between 80,000 and 1.8 million years ago, Homo habilis leaves. Neanderthals and Denisovans don't have it. We were probably, that's a, for me, a great strong argument that we were not eating starch, right? Mm. Not only did we not have fire until a million years ago, but there's a stretch in there, you know, between a million and 500,000 years that we might have had fire. We might have been eating starch. But if that was when the Homo habilis left Africa, then, you know, they probably would have had the amylase gene duplication if we had been eating starch or not. So, this is what's so fascinating to me. The fact that Neanderthal and Denisovan don't have amylase duplications mean that, means to me that eating starch is a very recent adaptation in humans. And that for the majority of our evolution, we were not eating starch. And that starch is not the reason our brains grew, that it's animals, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, you're saying that the brain was already kind of complete in terms of its, in terms of its maximal size. Yeah. At yeah. the point at which our ancestors began eating grains. I saw on the graph there was a little bit of a downturn yeah. in terms of brain volume about... I want to say, was it a thousand years ago? I think it's, I think it's, uh, more I mean, recent. Sorry, than that. not a thousand years ago. No, it's more recent than that. It, I think it's actually, if you look at it, it's only in the last 15,000 years, which correlates with agriculture. 15,000 years. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's the Neolithic revolution. So I talk about that in the book as well. Jared Diamond has called this the worst mistake in human history. Hmm. So this is the cult of the seed, agrarianism, pastoralism, and the fact that when we stopped hunting animals and went back to grains, you know, yeah we had no sense of how to balance a diet and all we knew was that we could just get calories and our nutrition suddenly went kind of down the tubes. It's one yeah. hypothesis for it. Well, that was the first, the first agricultural revolution, right? Right. Yeah. A lot has changed. A lot changed then and a lot has changed since then. Yes, it has. And certainly I think that we can construct diets out of plants that are better than what would have been done then. But that, that's a good sort of mirror to 
the, the hunting of animals caused our brains to grow. And when we went back to just eating grains, we kind of just, it started to shrink. Yeah. And then there's a fascinating study I talk about in the book. I'll, I'll say this and then I'll, we can wrap it up. Um, so I don't know the exact year, but they've done studies looking at B12 levels in brain size. Are you familiar with this one? Mm, no. Um, I, I bet you've seen it. Um, so the people that have the highest level of B12 have the biggest brains hmm. and you can correlate B12 level and brain size. Right. And so that kind of speaks to this whole vegan omnivore carnivore thing. Like where do we get B12? Well, we're only going to get B12 from animals. You know, all of James Wilkes crazy arguments aside, people can listen to my previous podcast about that if they want to hear about that. But B12 is in animals throughout our evolution. And so uh, bigger brain B12, we need B12 to have a bigger brain. And the people who have the smaller amounts of B12 look like they have smaller brains. Hmm. So whether it's a brain shrinking over someone's life or someone coming, you know, being sort of in a family with low B12, that's chronically depleted of animal foods, who knows? But what's crazy is that there's unpublished data from that study. And I'm trying to get a hold of this researcher so bad so that I can include it in the book. They stratified it by vegans and omnivores, right? And the largest vegan brain was smaller than the smallest omnivore brain. Oh, wow. And it's no surprise, right? That, the, um, the omnivores had much higher B12 levels and the vegans have lower B12 levels. And so vegan brains are smaller. I want to see that study. Yeah. I wonder if, I mean, the, what role B12 plays in brain volume prenatally? I mean, I'm sure a bit, uh, a huge role, but I wonder if that's, you know, did they, was it just like a cross-sectional study where they looked at like people and they did like a B12, like you know, serum. Draw I think so. Wow. Well, yeah. I think there's a serum B12 levels and brain size. I can pull it up, but yeah. Wow. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. I haven't seen that. That's super interesting. Yeah. Every time I hang out with you, man, I, I leave wanting to, to go eat a steak. <laughs> well, <laughs> you make me want to eat more meat. We could do that. Yeah. Man. We could do that. I'm super down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I'm actually, I'm actually pretty hungry. Um, well dude, this was fun. This has been an hour and a half. This is one of the longest, uh, episodes of my show, which I'm, you know, happy to do. And it's always fascinating talking to you. So thanks for having me on brother. Yeah. Thanks for coming up from San Diego. Um, when is the, uh, the book going to be available for my listeners? So to, the book uh, is going to be out it. on fe February the 11th, 2020. Okay. Um, whenever this podcast comes out, people can, um, pre-order it at the carnivorecodebook.com. But I think we're going to release it right about the time the book comes out. It'll be available Amazon. There will be an audio book and you can find everything about me at carnivoremd.com. And, uh, you can look for the podcast that I'm going to do with Max. Yeah. Can't on, wait on my podcast, which is fundamental health. Um, yeah. Awesome show. Yeah. So this podcast is going to be up. So the book will have just come out yesterday. Cool. Congrats. Thanks man. Congrats on the book launch. Yeah. <laughs> Exciting stuff. Um, all right, Paul, we're uh, the, at the last question, which is what does it mean to you to live a genius life? Man, I think it's just, I'll go back to this. Um, so one of the things that I liked about James Wilkes, time on Rogan yesterday was that he said, I'm a seeker of truth. And I thought, that's cool. And so I'm going to go with that. Like, I, I, I like truth, you know, and I feel like that's, that's kind of my why. And we all have bias, but truth is fun. You know, truth is interesting. And so for me, living a genius life is about trying as best we can to understand truth in all aspects of our lives, in terms of relationships, in terms of science, in terms of health, in terms of just how we live our lives. Like what is, what is the bedrock? What is the truth? I think there's a quote from your book about this. 
like there's one singular truth and oh yeah it's from <clears throat> it's from um, well it was a novel first but it became a movie Cloud Atlas by David right, Mitchell right. yeah truth is singular its versions are mistruths right yeah right. I so love I, that quote <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I'm so glad you referenced that wow so yeah so I like that I liked that like the singular truth like as much as we can to seek that for me is really what I would think of as like a genius life I love it cool I couldn't have said it better myself thanks again for being on the show. My pleasure. To all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you so much for listening. Spread the word about what we're doing here at The Genius Life. I would really appreciate that. And pick up Paul's new book. I will catch you on the next episode. Peace.